Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. No matter what instrument you play, I'm guessing that you've had occasional moments when you felt like your instrument was holding you back and wished you could upgrade or make a change to your equipment in some way. It's not so easy to just get a new instrument, of course, so we often start with smaller changes, like a different kind of rosin or shoulder pad or type of string. Growing up, I didn't know that there were different kinds of strings, so for years, I just used the same strings that I had always used, until someone suggested that I try a silver D, which led me to discover that there were actually quite a few different kinds of strings out there. And when I learned that different strings changed my violin sound and playability, I became a little bit obsessed, and over the course of a year or two, ended up trying pretty much every type of string that there was to try, ranging from gut to steel to the various synthetic cores that existed at the time. It wasn't cheap, but back in the early 90s, this was still doable, because there weren't that many different options. Today, this is no longer a practical strategy. There are just too many different strings available, and it would be too expensive to try everything. So how are we supposed to figure out which strings are best for our instrument? To answer this question, I reached out to two experts who deal with strings every day. One of my guests is Marcus Lawrenson, who is the European Market Development Manager for Daddario Orchestral. And my other guest is luthier Jesse Mashmeyer of Jesse Mashmeyer Violins in San Francisco, who not only sells fine instruments, but does adjustments, repairs, restorations, and also makes highly regarded instruments himself. In today's episode, you'll learn more about the different types of strings that are available and how factors like the core material, wrap, gauge, and tension affect the sound and playability of the strings. You'll also get specific tips and suggestions on how to choose the strings that will best match your playing style and instrument. One quick note before we get started. I wanted to make this episode as manufacturer agnostic as possible. So even though all three of us do mention specific brands and models of strings at various points, and Marcus is employed by Daddario, I wanted you to know that this episode is not being sponsored by any of the companies that are mentioned. Okay, with that said, let's kick things off with Marcus Lawrenson from Daddario. What I'd like to do is, is essentially just pick your brain a little bit on how one should navigate this journey of finding the right strings for them and their instrument. And before we even get to that, I wonder if the place to begin would be like a basic strings 101 kind of segment yeah. where maybe you could tell us how the strings are made, how those differences affect our sound, what are the manufacturing technologies involved even, like sure. what's changed in the last 10, yeah. 20, 30 years, all that kind of stuff. As you mentioned, gut core strings, they were the original string type going back to ancient Egypt, I believe. I guess they're best known for the real warm, organic, complex sound that they produce. And that's something we're always trying to mimic with modern string making technology to get the real intricacy of sound, the nuance of sound. But really, there are different core types to the strings. So the core is the material that runs end to end from the string that we then generally wrap with different wire wraps. So you have solid steel core, 
these were first used, I guess, around the late 1800s. They were developed, in particular the violin E string, because gut core strings snap so easily. So they have the benefits of, of durability, so they're really hard wearing, long lasting, put up with climate temperature change, but tonally they're kind of the polar opposite really to a gut core string. So we have to do a lot more work adding damping properties, that sort of thing to, to that inherently one-dimensional sounding piece of metal to give it more warmth and more character. We also have stranded steel core strings. They were first developed around the 1950s or thereabouts. If you imagine kind of like the rope core, like ropes that you see on suspension bridges made from metal, twisted metal, it's a similar technology, a similar idea. You have the benefits of the solid steel core strings, but you have that added flexibility, which gives you, again, more warmth, more, more nuance of sound. And then jumping forward to the late 60s, early 1970s, that's when synthetic core strings were first developed, originally using like a nylon core. Now, string manufacturers, we often use uh, materials such as peak, polyether ketone. So it's a real a multi-fiber synthetic core. So we're able to play around with that material. Um, you can have some strands more stretchy, some less stretchy, some thicker, some thinner. We can really play around to, to adjust the sound and the bow feel and the left-hand feel as well. So lots of variables that we can play around with. Obviously, the core makes a difference in what the string sounds yeah. like, but what does the wrap do? One of the, the primary purposes, obviously, you need a certain mass to a string to get it to sound at the pitch you want. So with a wire wrap, you're able to add mass to the string, ultimately, without losing the flexibility and the uniformity of the string. So the string is still ultimately playable. If you picture something like a double bass string, obviously quite thick, quite big, um, if you were just relying on a piece of solid steel, for example, to get it up to the pitch required, it would be so thick, it would be almost unplayable to get the string vibrating. So by adding wire wraps, we keep that flexibility so it's still a nice playable string. But then, of course, there's durability. That's another aspect. We use more modern materials such as Monel, for example, on one of our student strings, Ascente. The reason being it's really corrosion resistant. So, of course, younger players, older players too, we don't always clean our hands before we play this sort of thing. So finishing with that Monel wire wrap, it's really corrosion resistant, puts up with dirt and not being looked after as well as we would hope. So in other words, there are a variety of different kinds of wraps. Yes. Yeah, for yeah. a variety of different reasons. And we, we can use that. different metals such as gold and silver, titanium. Again, all have different tonal properties. You might come across a violin set that has different options. Maybe it has a aluminium wound D string or a silver wound D string. What the silver wound set generally will provide is a warmer tone. That was the first thing I tried. Someone recommended a silver <laughs> D. I was like, oh, that sounds cool. Yeah, I'll try it. And I don't even yeah. know how much of a difference it made or for this placebo effect. But And then a gold E yeah. was next, of course. I was going to say, I see a lot of players, especially, I mean, when I was a, well, still am a violinist, but used to play professionally. But when I was a teenager, as soon as I saw a gold-plated E-string, I thought, that looks so cool. It's almost like rappers having a gold tooth. Um, but actually, it's a harder string to play, I should add. That gold plating, it's more likely to whistle or squeak. So it looks cool, but yeah, there are drawbacks. <laughs> what are the benefits, actually, of that goldie? I mean, if there are some downsides in terms of the whistling, what are some of the positive aspects? It alters the tone, ultimately. So you can, some people would perceive it as a slightly warmer tone. Again, 
you know, some people react stronger. Their chemical makeup in their fingers might react to unfinished, unwound carbon steel, traditional tin-plated carbon steel. So they may be that having gold, the string will last that much longer because they're not reacting with the with the core metal. That can be another reason. But more often than not, I find people go for it for aesthetic <laughs> reasons. Until the, the whistling becomes so annoying that you end up... Uh, exactly. In, back. <laughs> in terms of the whistling, what causes the whistling? Because it's super annoying, uh, but I don't it, really it understand it. <laughs> the bad news, I'll start with the bad news, is that generally whistling when you go from the A to the E string is a technique issue. So it's to do with the pressure and the pace of your bow. What's scientifically happening is as you're going from the A to the E string, you're dragging the E string and twisting it torsionally. And it's that torsional rotation that is stopping the string engaging as it's designed to. So therefore it just doesn't speak. So it either squeaks, whistles, or just nothing comes out. I mean, there are ways to combat it, of course, one product that we make called our non-whistling E-string actually has a stranded steel core and an aluminium winding. And this string, it's impossible to make it squeak because even if the string is dragged and rotates torsionally, it will always engage and always speak. The trade-off is a slightly warmer tone, but yeah, ultimately squeaking is a technique issue. So the way that you described it sounds like a warmer E-string is not necessarily what you're looking for, generally speaking. Yeah, I mean, the non-whistling E-string that we produce has a warmer tone, but I don't know. I find sounds go in trends, I think. Same for teaching. And there seems to be more of a, a kind of move towards, in general, a darker, softer sound. I don't know if this was accelerated during lockdowns over the last few years, people practicing in smaller rooms. This is my personal thought on it. And people got used to playing in a smaller space than perhaps they were used to and were looking for something less piercing and less bright. So we're seeing more demand, I would say, for these sorts of softer E-strings anyway. So can be something to, to try. Yeah, that's interesting because I had like a whole E-string evolution myself too. I you know, mentioned the gold E-string and then I went for a long time in the opposite direction to an E-string that was like a dollar. I think it was called the Westminster E or something. It was, it was right. super cheap yep. and it seemed to work yeah. really well for me. And then I think at some point it ended up becoming like a Yarger Forte E or something like that, which is again another question. I know that people don't generally have a whole range of different kinds of strings for every string. But a lot of times, at least for violinists, I'm not sure if that's the case for other string players, um, they'll use a completely different brand E-string with the A, D, and G matched to yeah. a different manufacturer, perhaps. Can yeah. you explain why we do that or what the benefits uh, are? For cellists, it's a much more common way of approaching a set of strings. There's quite a common pairing of cello strings having like a Larson on the A and the D, Spiracore on the C and the G. That's quite a common mix. Viola players often will mix their strings. And as you say, violinists often will use a different E string. I think certainly for, for cellists, violists, it's more the sound. This is the reason for having the different types of strings. They want a different a more matched sound is what they're looking for, I guess. Different feel perhaps on the bottom strings. I guess, you know, with a C and G string on a cello and a viola, sometimes you need a bit more help from the strings to get the kind of clarity of sound. That could be one reason. With violinists, it's often a cost issue. I think with, with E strings, as you say, we'll, yeah, we'll go through E strings more than other strings, perhaps. So if we need to get some spare ones, we'll just buy something that's cheaper. 
being such a thin string, the differences between strings aren't as perceivable as well. So that could be another reason too. Speaking of cost, I haven't looked at string prices for a long time, but I know that when I did, <laughs> cost did factor a little into my decisions to a degree. And so there's two things here. One, why do some strings cost so much more than others? Right. Never mind gut. We understand why that's more expensive. Yeah. But yeah. Um, that plus how long do strings generally last anyway? And I know that that's a complex question that depends. Starting with how, how long they last. I mean, all of our strings come in kind of corrosion-resistant packaging. But even with that in place, we would probably comfortably would say three years. If you're buying a new string, it should be safe in the packet for, for three years, we would think. I mean, one thing we do at the Dario, we don't like build up huge stockpiles of, of any product, really. So the product you're getting should always be fresh, which which helps. And then looking at the, the cost of strings it is a really good question and obviously we're we're known for making guitar strings as well which are that much cheaper than bowed strings violin strings one of the reasons is the time it takes to make the strings like a guitar string putting the the material on the machine and into the packet could be 20 seconds perhaps per string to make something like that whereas violin strings it could be two to five minutes cello six seven minutes bass strings up to eight nine minutes perhaps per string to make so there's that obvious increase in labor cost and then having these different wraps that we use sometimes the price of aluminium silver titanium even that can just add to the cost as well so that's one of the reasons or a few of the reasons why they cost that much more <laughs> in terms of how long do strings so that's fascinating you know i have a bunch of strings in my case i haven't played for a while which are no good because they've been sitting in there for like over 10 years. Um, but once they're on your instrument, again, it depends on how dirty your hands are, how oily, how often you yeah. play, et cetera. But how do you gauge how long each string will last in terms of its playable it's, characteristics? Obviously, it varies per instrument. Violin strings don't last as long as cello strings. The bigger the string, the longer ultimately it should last. With violin strings, as you say, it, it really depends on how much you're playing, <laughs> very much so what you're playing and where you're playing it. Maybe you're doing a lot of weddings or you're playing indoors and outdoors. I would expect your strings to need changing maybe every couple of months if you're playing outside a lot. But really, strings rarely break when they're worn out these days. With the advancements in the technology, the fact is the strings will die. The sound will kind of level off. And it's when you really start to notice a difference in the color of the strings. I mean, obviously, when you put new strings on, they do sound that much brighter. But ultimately, when we're designing strings, we want them to keep at that kind of tonal level for as long as possible. So if you're picking up that the sound has changed quite drastically, then that's probably time to change your strings, which isn't, I'm not giving a real, a real straight answer. I know it's really hard to tell, but that's what I'd be looking for. Obviously, if any of the windings are becoming loose, if you've got loose bits of metal there, anything like that, any lumps or bumps, then that's time to change your string as well. Often student instruments, I go into like music hubs, so who provide lessons in, in the UK. Sometimes they've got rooms full of hundreds of violin cases with tiny little violins in. And like I see rusty strings even sometimes, which is heartbreaking to see. But yeah, they just don't snap, but they corrode, which is not great. <laughs> so you mentioned, I think, rule of thumb for violinists who are playing regularly, maybe a couple months, especially if it's indoor-outdoor. Could you give like rough numbers for viola, cello, bass, even guitar, mandolin, banjo? 
it's really hard to, to put a fine number on it. I mean, we advise, I don't know, viola perhaps every six months to a year, cello every year to two years, and then bass players every two to three years, I would say, is sensible to change your strings. But that being said, it's not uncommon to see 10, 15-year-old sets of strings on double basses because they really do last that much longer. <laughs> there are a couple other things that I want to get to in a second, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit what the manufacturing process actually looks like. Oh, right. Yeah, I can, sort of briefly. So at Dario, we use all our own machinery. So we design and engineer it ourselves in New York. So we have our Kaplanatic machines. So it's almost, how can I describe it? It's a very large <laughs> machine, and the entire process is carried out on one machine. So that's the first thing, I guess, to note. So You'll have your core material, say it's a piece of stranded steel. There's a process before that, obviously, to make the stranded steel core. That would go onto the winding machine. At that point, maybe, I don't know, some damping compound might be added to the string just to warm up the string sound. Then the string might rotate on the machine and then, you know, up and down might run one winding. It will get wound onto the string. Then it might turn again, click, and then another winding might be applied. So it depends on the string. The bigger the string, the obviously the more windings that you're generally going to add. So E strings have none. A strings might have one, D, two, or three. It depends on the string being made. But yeah, so it all happens on the one string. Silking, so the colored ends to the string, we're just actually starting to automate more of this. There's actually a video just gone out on social media, if you follow us on Instagram or, or Facebook, showing the silking being applied. But still, there's some operator hand-finished aspect. So someone actually has to put the silk, the material on the string, and then it will just run it up and down to add the colored ends. And then often by hand, coiled and, and into the packet. So that's a very rough explanation of how strings are made. This might be a silly question, but I know that within the string family, there's obviously a different set of colors associated with the strings, so you know how to tell them apart. But is there any rhyme or reason around the colors? Um, I honestly don't know. It's annoying in one aspect that amongst all of us manufacturers, there's no standard color system. So Daria, we have our own color system, but other manufacturers have their own. If you ever go on to our website, we have silking charts, but there are also websites which list these silking colors for all manufacturers. So that, that can be a great resource for teachers, actually, if they ever have a student come to them with a violin or whatever instrument and they're not sure what the strings are. You can Google string silking color charts, something like that, and then you can do a bit of detective work and see what's on there. I wonder if you could also speak a little bit to the research and development process. Like, how do you experiment? How do you test things out? And, and even the testing, is there some person who plays on a cello with a bunch of different, or is there like a <laughs> Ultimately, robot? Ultimately, yeah, just... that's where it often begins. So at Dario, the orchestral branch where I work, we're all pretty much all musicians. We're all string players. For that reason that, yeah, when, when you're developing something new, you need to play test it initially. Obviously, we have our acoustic engineer, R&D director, who really understand the true science, not my kind of phony science. They really understand the, the true science behind making strings. So they're able to, to dial in and they're pretty confident with what they're going to turn out. But then ultimately, it has to be play tested really thoroughly. So 
internally with the team to start with, but then, of course, we would look to involve leading players wherever possible to test out anything being developed. Are there any, well, I guess, where do the synthetic core material ideas come from or how do those develop? Are there any on the horizon that are being explored or tested that you're able to share? I don't know if I'm allowed to say. (laughs) I think it's fair to say there haven't been any revolutionary changes to to synthetic core material in the past few years, certainly, but we're always looking to to experiment and develop new things. So all I can say is watch this space. But yes, there is constant development going on, trying different materials, new materials. When we talked about this before, we intended it to be relatively manufacturer agnostic in terms of the discussion. Yeah. I have to confess that when I was going through my string testing phase, I got very excited about the Daddario Zyx strings because mm-hmm. I don't know yeah. what the description was in the magazine that I read, but I was like, ooh, I got to try those. And also, a I new, tend to a be a little bit contrarian, and nobody else was really using Daddario that I knew at the time. So I was like, well, I'll be the, the weirdo that tries something different. <laughs> and I really liked them, actually. And I ended up using Helicore eventually because my violin needed something that projected better. All this to say, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the, like, what are the differences between the different synthetic chords? Because there's so many different ones now amongst different manufacturers. Um, What really are the differences there? I guess to sort of go back to to the beginning, really, with all strings in general, what I find, I talk to a lot of teachers, musicians, in general, the kind of bowed string community, we don't really think about our strings or our gear at all compared to, say, guitar players or percussionists or or drummers. So, yeah, often I find players have preconceived ideas about this kind of sound that different core types can produce. To go back to the solid steel core, for example, if you say that to most teachers, certainly in Europe, they'll just associate them with being cheap and sounding metallic, which is actually not always the case. Us, along with other manufacturers, we always try and develop strings to help solve problems and make playing easier, as you know, as easy as possible for whoever the strings in, intended for. So, for example, something like a, a beginner solid steel core string, the reason that it's perfect for a beginner is that it's easy to play, get a clear sound, holds its pitch really well. But when you move on to synthetic cores, you can really vary that material so much. So something like, I mean, we have a string called Sente, which is ultimately a student synthetic core string. So it has a synthetic core, so you get this more nuance of color. But what we were able to do is make sure the core material wasn't overly stretchy, so it's still really pitch stable. So you always have to have the player in mind. Maybe they've been playing a couple of years. They're not too confident still tuning with the pegs. They might be learning in a group setting. So, of course, teachers, they hate having to spend, as I well know, 10 minutes at the beginning of every lesson tuning up everyone's (laughs) instrument. So coming back to the string, we thought, well, we can help teachers with this, make a string that really holds its pitch. So even though it's got a synthetic core, it's not going to have the tonal properties of a more professional level string that's designed for someone with a real advanced technique that can really dig in. That type of core what we can do is put the string under a higher tension. So that increase in tension means you have to work harder with your bow arm to get the string to speak, to get all the colors and nuances out. But there's a wider palette there for you to play with. But if you were to give a beginner those strings, they wouldn't really get the benefit 
of them. And also, they're probably going to be using a cheaper, lower cost instrument. And some strings can be overkill for, for some instruments. There's kind of a limit to what the, the string can do in harmony with the instrument that it's on. I guess I'm also wondering, what are some of the, the key characteristics in the core? Is there an ideal hypothetical material that would make an excellent core? Because uh, it sounds like there's trade-offs in terms of what the player yeah. wants and what they can do, where they're at mm -hmm. currently. With synthetic cores, when you're beyond the beginner stage, the number one thing is your sound, the quality of sound. So first of all, you'd consider the level of instrument you have. Um, so if you're playing on something, I don't know, sort of like $5,000, $10,000 and above, then you can really benefit i find more from the higher end synthetic core strings so they might have higher tension but certainly you're going to have to work a bit harder to get the the desired sound from them if you have a more mid-price sort of instrument then it depends if you've got a very bright instrument for example the way i often look at it is to kind of counterbalance the inherent string sound with the instrument sound so say you have a really bright sounding violin Normally, I would recommend starting with a darker sounding string to kind of balance that out. Conversely, if you've got a dark sounding violin, you might try something brighter. We have a string called Pro Arte, which is very, very, very low tension, very flexible core material, very dark, warm sound. I often find that pairs well with a brighter kind of mid-level instrument kind of balances it out and again it depends as a player what type of music you're playing where you're playing maybe you're doing more chamber music more orchestral playing then you might go for something that isn't as high tension maybe not as projecting something with lower projection lower volume of sound if you want to blend blend in with who you're playing with that much more which can could lead me off onto string tension, but I'm happy to go wherever you want. Yeah, no, can you talk more about tension? Because, I mean, does that relate to projection? Does that relate to... Yeah, yeah. Tell me what that it, relates to. As string manufacturers, we, and all manufacturers, I should say, design their strings at medium tension to suit by far the majority of instruments and musicians out there. But that being said... It might be that you're finding maybe one string is weaker than the other three, perhaps. Obviously, you should go to your luthier first, check that out if there's any problem with the instrument. But if not, then it might be that you need a different tension string to, to counterbalance. This is kind of in, in simple terms, but heavy tension string. Also, there are light tension strings. Other manufacturers might say Stark or Dolce for the different tensions out there. We just say medium, heavy, light. So heavy tension string in general will give you more volume of sound, more projection. There's more mass to the string, so you're going to have to dig in a little bit more to get the string moving, to get the airwaves oscillating and the string sounding, so that results in, in a bigger sound. But you will lose some of the subtleties in the piano pianissimo register. But then on the other hand, light tension strings, you don't have to work as hard with the bow to get them to engage and to sound. So you're going to get more subtlety in, in the piano register, but a slight loss of the volume projection of the sound. I mean, another key thing with a light tension string is you're going to have a faster bow response. So again, by that, I mean the string is speaking really quickly. So again, for chamber music playing, perhaps, sometimes that can be a good thing. If you find you're sticking out in, in your section in an orchestra, then maybe you should try light tension strings. If you can't blend your instrument sound, that's where strings could help you. You mentioned earlier left-hand feel and bow feel 
this sounds like it might be related a little bit to bow feel. I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about left hand feel because I swear the Zyx strings, again, it's not an ad for Zyx, but I swear <laughs> the Zyx strings, because they like felt it. so thick, I swear they helped me play better in tune relative to the Helicor strings, which I ended up having to use for just what sounded better and projected better. Yeah. The Helicor strings, of course, were like a wet noodle. If you just hold yep. it up, they just droops, which I found <laughs> remarkable. And they were so much thinner, though, that I, yeah. I felt like it was harder to play in tune relative to the Zyx. Mm, it's tricky. Helicore have a, a stranded steel core. And in often what you will find with stranded steel core strings is they do have smaller diameter. They are physically thinner, as you say. For, I guess, a more advanced player, that can be an issue. But where I do see some success and kind of seen as an advantage, certainly looking at cellos, for young cellists, it can be quite daunting, quite a difficult instrument to, to get to terms with. And having that thinner diameter, that smaller diameter string can actually help help with playing in tune and help with playing chords as well with the bow. It's easier to hit hit more than one string. But yeah, I find in general, the thicker the string, people perceive that as a softer feel, certainly. So is tension related to the gauge or the thickness of the string, or, or are they independent? They're, they're independent, so not necessarily. So tension is really like the amount of weight you're going to have to hang off a string in effect to get it to sound at the desired pitch because we're using different windings we can add <clears throat> add mass to the string with not adding too much weight i wonder if you could speak a little more to the player characteristics not so much even just beginner advanced nor even necessarily orchestral chamber music solo but yeah so i'll go i don't know pick an example for bass bass players you're often going to get jazz players or you might get classical players some do a bit of both so maybe for jazz players what they're looking for is a really long sustain pizzicato sustain perhaps that that's what they often like so that would lead me towards a synthetic core bass string you've got the longer sustain you've got the richer sound having a synthetic core as opposed to a stranded steel core so that would point me in that direction for like bluegrass or folk fiddle players, trad players, say on violin, I'd immediately be steered towards something like helicore because it has that stranded steel core. Apart from being really durable, which suits their playing environment, it has a super fast bow response. So if you're playing really quick, repeated notes, fast string crossing, you know, that's a set of strings that will suit that style of playing. And then, yeah, someone perhaps who is looking for a darker sound, you'd probably move away from stranded steel, from steel core, you'd go straight to a synthetic core string and then search for the one that has the, has the darkest, warmest sound. Of course, it's easy for me to say, but it's really hard to try out all these strings. It costs a lot of money, of course, to, to test them out. So, I mean, a good bit of advice is to try your friend's instruments, see what strings they've got, test them out, see what, ask them what they like or don't like about them and ask them if they think their instrument is bright or dark and why they've gone with the strings they're using, just to try and gain as much knowledge before investing in a new set. So maybe this is a good place to ask, is there a general process that you would recommend or an approach to beginning this journey of exploring strings? Like what are the basic questions we should ask? And I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot to, to develop this <laughs> methodology, but... First of all, I guess the level of player. So if you're absolute beginner, then 
you should really be going for solid steel core strings. That's pretty easy. But <laughs> I would say try and avoid the factory fitted mass produced strings that often come with instruments. They can have a kind of jangly metallic sound. It's worth paying a little bit extra for something that has a warmer sound to it, that has damping properties added to it. And then I guess the first thing to ask is what type of instrument are you playing on? Do you think it has a bright or, or a dark sound inherently? Or ask your teacher, ask your friends what they think. If it's on the brighter side, then you're more likely going to go for a synthetic core string on the warmer side. So that could be a, a starting point. Use your experience of what strings you've already tried and that you have on the instrument currently. Maybe you have a set of strings that you do quite like the feel and the response. So then it might be worth investigating what is the tension of those strings. Again, it'll either be on the packet if you still have it, or you can look up online. So if you do like that feel, then maybe try and find something with similar kind of tension level to the set. Then the, my best advice is really to swap strings with people. It's something that us as string players don't tend to do. Often we're a bit worried about changing our strings and think it's quite a, you know, can be a traumatic ordeal, but it doesn't have to be. With a violin, for example, or any instrument really, like violin, viola, cello, why not just try the bottom string first? Try the G or the C. Often that can give you an idea if you like the feel and the tone. It can only take, you know, one minute to swap strings with someone and see how it reacts with your instrument. And then that can give you the best indication of all. I love that idea of switching strings or swapping strings temporarily and just trying them out. I don't know why I never thought of that because because then you get a string that's already broken in and you don't have to wait a few days or however long. And it's also free, of course. That's awesome. And actually, in the double bass playing community, <clears throat> I guess because because their strings do last that much longer, there are plenty of websites, forums, where they do swap strings or sell strings that have been used for a week or two weeks or a month. I wouldn't advise doing that necessarily with, with other instruments, but with double bass maybe that's why they're more open and more knowledgeable perhaps i find of different string brands because they do experiment because they have that facility to do so this leads to a slightly different question i went through a number of different bows over the course of a span of years around college and each bow that i played with made the violin sound different and I don't know if this is 100% related to the discussion about strings, but do you have a sense of why that is? What happens with the bow and even the rosin as it relates to the string that changes the yeah. sound? They all play an integral part with the instrument. I'm sure I've read somewhere. I, I can look it up and share it after. I think it was research done by a, another manufacturer. But they, they tried to like quantify <clears throat> the parts of, of playing. So the instrument, the bow, the rosin, I think, and the strings. What kind of percentage part they played in in the sound production i have a feeling that strings of 20 to 30 percent is what what they came up with i'll have to check but yeah the bow itself really can vary the sound production it's really as you know it's like the breath for a singer that's what the bow is to, to us so it might be that the bow hair is really worn out that can make a huge difference and if further down the line that the rosin can greatly affect because that is the interaction <laughs> between the string and the bow that can really vary the color of sound even or the level of pressure that you're having to get that attack i meant to ask earlier just sort of forgot I never once experimented with the lighter gauge or the Dolce tensions. It was only ever medium 
sometimes forte or the higher tension strings. Yeah. And now I feel like I missed out because there might have been times where <laughs> it would have been nice to experiment with that, playing an orchestra, not wanting to stick out too mm -hmm. much and being able yeah. to play a little bit more freely, perhaps, and not feel like yeah. I'm walking on mm -hmm. eggshells. Mm -hmm. Is it just me that never experimented or is it not that common to experiment on the... It's not that common. It's really not. I mean, this is a complete guess, but I would imagine it's in the 90% or above that are using medium tension compared to light or heavy tension. And often it will be players that maybe just one string they might use at a different tension, one or two strings just to balance things out. I can think of a couple of players that use a full like heavy tension or a full light tension. But those are few and far between, I would say. I would say it's more the professional high-end players. They'd probably be more likely to experiment with the tensions because obviously they're lucky to have access to amazing sounding instruments. So they can really go to the nth degree of, of changing something to try and get the maximum kind of sound color that they're looking for. Could you verbalize in any way what sort of a difference would one notice with medium versus light or medium versus heavy with the same um, kind of strings? So you would notice, like looking at violin, if you were putting heavy tension on, you'll notice that the string, it would feel a little bit slower to respond and speak. You, you have to adjust your playing style, particularly your bow arm. That's one of the reasons why I'd never recommend having light to heavy tension on one instrument. You couldn't mix... Well, you could, but I wouldn't recommend it having light, medium and heavy or light and heavy because the feel would be so weird. It would be so odd changing strings. You can only go medium to light or, or medium to heavy. So, yeah, it, it's quite a noticeable difference. But you adapt. Of course, we adapt very quickly. We have a sound in our head we're trying to produce. Often I see people's faces light up when they try <laughs> light tension strings because perhaps they, they had an instrument that was just a little bit closed and they were just struggling with the bow to produce the sound they were looking for. And then suddenly you put light tension on and it just sings. They don't have to work as hard. I've had that happen a few times recently. I'm just very intrigued by light tension now because so David Kim, the concert master of the Philadelphia Orchestra came by a week or so ago to give a talk to my class. And he talked about how in auditions, and he wasn't speaking just about string auditions or violin auditions, but across the board, how there's something magical about the soft playing. It's not even so much about the loud playing that just makes them lean in and be like, oh, that's really awesome. But there, he said there's something magical about the soft playing, which makes me wonder if there is something to be gained, perhaps, by having some of these light tension strings when you're doing perhaps. auditions. I don't know if that's the case or not. I don't want everyone yeah. going out and buying them necessarily. Perhaps. But yeah, that's why I'm very it, curious. I wish I would have explored. There's still time. <laughs> you still can. <laughs> but yeah, as a student, and when I was auditioning for orchestras, yeah, I didn't really know much about strings. I never experimented with light tension. But yeah, I would say in general, the different tensions are really for more advanced players. It's not really, I would say, for, for beginners and also on lower cost instruments really don't need to play around. But if you're auditioning professionally, then yeah, you want to try and make life as easy as you can. So light tension could help you get that subtlety in the piano register. Yes. So if you're essentially happy with the the characteristics of the string, the quality of sound, how it feels under the left hand. Would the first move, if you're looking to tweak something, maybe be to experiment with 
different tensions of the same string rather than going to a completely different string? I would say so, 100%, as kind of as a rule of thumb, when anyone's trying a new brand of string, I always advise starting with medium tension because they're designed for the majority at that tension. So yeah, I would advise whatever string you're using, try, if you're looking for something different, more subtlety piano perhaps, then yeah, try the light tension version of the string you're using first, because it won't be worlds apart from the what you're used to. Whereas if you're looking for something completely different, then that's the time to go to a completely different string perhaps. Yeah, completely different string and starting at medium tension first. So there are probably lots of questions I should have asked, but didn't know <laughs> to ask. Are there things that you want to make sure that we talk a little um, bit about before we wrap up? Obviously, I want people to think about their string choice a lot more. Actually, one thing probably I can talk about um, experience I had growing up, actually, with perhaps not always the best teachers at the time. Sometimes you go up a level playing and they say to you, right, or to your parents, it's probably time you should get a better instrument at this point. I do lots and lots of string test sessions with teachers, with students, and colleges all over the place. And often the players are amazed at the results that you can get from changing the set of strings, not the instrument. So whereas it's very quick to say, oh, you just need a better instrument, perhaps the strings are just not working with that instrument. They're not in harmony with it. And yeah, changing the string can really alter the voice entirely. So yeah, I think that's a good <laughs> message to put out there. And it's a lot cheaper <laughs> than, than changing your instrument in general. One other thing that, that happened recently for me, I had to take the violin out and play a little bit for a family thing. And I used to use the rubber sponge or the pink sponge mm -hmm. thing for yeah. forever. And then I ended up trying this other, basically like a, a metal thing with a small pad, which only mm -hmm. made contact with the instrument, these four little tiny rubber points. And that changed dramatically how open my instrument sounded in the projection qualities. And so I was yeah. able to actually go back to Zyx instead of having to use Helicore and still get that projection, which yeah. is another factor that for some may be worth exploring and could affect what strings you choose as well, perhaps. Exactly. Yeah, there's some real great new advancements in shoulder rest, chin rest technology in the last couple of years. So yeah, go to your local violin shop and try those out for sure. So speaking of violin shops, this seems like the perfect place to introduce Jesse Mashmeyer, who can offer some insights into how a luthier might approach the challenge of identifying the right strings for your instrument. Given that Jesse not only sells and restores instruments, but makes his own, I wondered if there were any particular strings that he gravitated towards when it came to setting up his own instruments. Here's what he had to say. Well, dominance is a great starting point because it's just reliable and middle of the road. So even the finest instruments we would set up with dominance, play it in for a few weeks, and then if need be, you can go to different string brands depending on the shortcomings or perceives shortcomings of the sound. It's a lot easier to experiment with the E strings with the dominant A, D, and G, and then many different E strings. You can also change the G string with the tension of the E. I would start there and maybe play the instrument end until it's opening up, and then I've really had good experience with another Tomastic string, Vision Solo, and there's a Vision Solo Titanium that sometimes I use on the 
G to give even more power to the G if it needs balancing. I think they make some orchestra, which for them means it's a more blending string with the orchestra. I don't know if Rondo has made a big splash, but it sure has here in this market that has become like a dominant, but a little richer. Drawback is it doesn't last as long as dominance can. Then we have the Perastro branch with the Ava Prozzi Classic and Ava Prozzi Gold. Sometimes if an instrument is lacking power, Ava Prozzi Gold can really soup it up. And then there's, as I mentioned, the E's. Usually there's a different E or a whole arsenal of E's that one can try. As Jesse and I continued to talk, it became clear that there's actually a lot more to picking the right strings than picking the right strings. Because no matter what kind of strings you put on your instrument, you're not going to get the full picture of what they have to offer if your instrument isn't properly adjusted and set up. Here's Jesse again to elaborate. Adjusting an instrument with the strings is not where I start as a luthier. Start more by measuring the placement of the bridge and the placement of the posts and checking the seams. And then I usually, if they're not happy with the sound, I don't change the old strings until those first setup issues are addressed. Because once you put a new set of strings on, as you mentioned, then you have the metallic sound for maybe a week, which I understand is the minuscule gaps between the windings that get filled in as the string gets played with rosin and, and skin cells and oil sort of fill in those minuscule gaps and take away that buzzy new string sound, as well as it sort of gets smoothed out, I think, and stretched. However, then it goes to the musician, not as much the way they play as what sound they're looking for, and there is quite a difference. Some are attracted to a bright sound versus a dark, and you mentioned the tension of the left hand on the string that can change with adjustments and different strings are more stiff or higher tension than others. Some players want to play very lightly, so you'd want something that's very responsive and doesn't need a lot of getting into the string. I was always so surprised by how much a difference in sound the bow seemed to make. I wonder if you could explain maybe a little bit how that interacts with the string and with the violin to produce such a different sound? The answer is every tiny thing changes the sound of an instrument. One of the things I've run into with sound post adjusting is the bow not being able to get into the string, the string or the violin or instrument being so tight that the bow was just picking up the surface and not getting the body of the instrument resonating. And some bows can correct for that, but I've also found the sound post tension can allow the bow to get into the string, if that's the best way I know how to explain it. There's often a surfacey sound where the bow is just sort of not getting in, and then you would feel it in your left hand that the, the string is sort of resisting, so that would be an adjustment issue. As someone who is responsible for trying to help the player maximize their sound and get closer to what it is that they're looking for. 
Already, I'm getting a little bit overwhelmed thinking about the different variables. How do you narrow that down? Or how do you, what do you, I don't even know what the question is, but like, how do you? Yeah, my best answer is start with everything in the center of where it should be, like dominance or middle road. The bridge should be equidistant between the F-holes. The sound post should be millimeter inside the bridge foot, two and a half to three millimeters behind. Make sure that's in order. The seams. Make sure the chin rest is not too tight or too loose. The fingerboard and nut. And then you can get to the more trial and error, I would call it. Unfortunately, applying the scientific method is harder or near impossible in this field. But there are people tempting it. But the fact of the matter is, as you say, there's so many variables that one must have a bit of almost humility and say, well... The end of the day, it's trial and error, and you could have some working hypothesis about what could ameliorate this or improve that. But at the end of the day, it's just focus on the the most basic things that should be in the middle, and in the middle, I mean by standard or what has worked for the most instruments in the past. And then you can go to the boxwood pegs versus ebony pegs and a $400 shoulder rest versus my $18 Everest and chin rest. Some people swear by the side mounted or the center mounted and moving it slightly. It seems like it could be a fun process. I certainly enjoyed manipulating all those variables, but also a little bit crazy making because at some point you're not even sure if you're hearing what you think you're hearing. And then what you're hearing, of course, may be different than what a listener hears far out in the hall. So for somebody who is not pleased with the sound that they're getting out of their instrument in the moment, would you suggest that going to a luthier first and getting everything adjusted would be a better first step than starting to experiment with all sorts of strings? Yeah, I would say probably check the seams, bridge placement, the post a difficulty with changing strings is the straightness of the bridge and having to tune so much a new string. Everyone knows that it pulls the bridge forward and it gets warped more on the G than the E because of the thickness and the amount of tuning. So a lot of times just the string change itself brings up other difficulties and maybe the bridge gets slightly off to one side or it's warping forward. So when I change strings, I tune just the bridge, tune some more, adjust the bridge, try to get the pegs in the right angle so you're not trying to do acrobatics while you're tuning. If you have time and buy the strings at the luthier shop, I change strings for people and do all that straightening so that at least they're going away with the bridge in the right place. They often ask for string recommendations and it's not like a personal preference for me. It's more of listening to them and what is not working and what they're looking for and then putting together a string set. I usually stick with one brand for the ADNG or the D, G, and C on a viola, and the G and C on cello, and then use maybe another brand for the A, D on a cello, the A on a viola, and the E on the violin. 
having different brands is problematic because of the different tensions. So I don't recommend trying to adjust your violin with three different brands of strings. I feel a little ridiculous that this is just now occurring to me, but it would seem that taking your violin to someone like yourself who's heard many different players using different strings, play on many different instruments over the course of many years, you probably have a pretty good instinctive and also concrete understanding of which strings might work best for that player and that instrument. Yes, a plug for my previous employer in Boston, where for 10 years, describing sound is extremely difficult, but there was a sound that they were looking for. And it wasn't one-on-one even. It was often a six or eight, even a dozen people listening together. And there was a shop sound that we were looking for. It's almost impossible to explain, but yes. <laughs> Is there anything that you wish more string players would know, whether it's about their instrument or strings or anything in that domain that you see? The one thing that comes to mind that can totally make your violins sound great or terrible is the straightness of the bridge and putting graphite in the groove so that you can pull it back easily and more easily. That is really number one in maintenance, I think. So you mean the verticality of the bridge? The verticality, there's also, looking from the side, there's 90 degree on the back and the tooth angle on the front and then across looking down the bridge the straightness that way which often gets tweaked to one side or the other so have to manipulate and not so much use your fingers to pull it but your arms like have a gentle but firm grip with your thumbs behind the bridge and your fingers in front and use your body to pull the thing. If that makes sense. Because when Absolutely. you're manipulating with your fingers, you can flip it or break it or control and using your body to keep the bridge going and, and do it on a daily basis. Every time you tune, I'd say just sort of work it into the tuning if possible. And maybe watch somebody do that first before you give it a go on your first Yeah, I'm trying to show people so they can see and get the muscle memory. You can get the full transcript of this week's chat, plus links to various things that came up in conversation at bulletproofmusician.com slash blog.